If you are a child and you're heading back to uh, the children's area, now would be the time to do that. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 5. It's where we're going to launch out from, is Matthew chapter 5. Thank you, all of you leaders as well who are heading back. Uh, quick announcement as we begin this morning. Uh, this tonight, we begin uh, five nights in a row, I believe it's five, uh, of what we're calling a week of what we're calling resurrender. Uh, and it's just this idea that we as a church want to gather together to seek the Lord uh, for all kinds of things, for the future of journey, for uh, deliverance in our life, um, just to, to know him deeper, to trust him more. And you can actually, if you're in a, if you're in a journey group, uh, I think you've, each journey group has signed up for a day to fast this week. And if you're like, what does that even mean? Um, you can go to journeyjonesboro.com. There is a tab for the resurrender week. There are uh, prayer lists. There are prayer guides. There are um, even Spotify playlists because we go above and beyond, right? Spotify playlists for each day. So y'all aren't as impressed as I was. Um, now I haven't listened to them yet. So, but uh, anyway, you can do that. It kind of gives you a guide of how to fast, how to, how to pray this week. So definitely be here. It's each night at six o'clock. Uh, we're going to only be here for about an hour, and each night's going to have a little bit of a different feel, a little bit of a different uh, way that we do it. Uh, so it's not going to be kind of cookie cutter each night, but there will be some, some worship together and then jumping in to some prayer together as God's people and as a local church. So I definitely encourage you to make as many of those nights if you can, if not all of them. We're going to continue our series today, Counter Kingdom, where we've been looking at the Beatitudes, Jesus' uh, blessings at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. That's where we've been for the last few weeks. That's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. It's an eight-week series through the Beatitudes talking about the fact that Jesus says that when he came to earth, he ushered in the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven was brought from heaven to earth. It was inaugurated in Jesus' coming, and then it is continuing on through his people by the power of the Spirit. But what does the kingdom of heaven look like when it comes to earth? And so Jesus is talking before he gets into how to live in the kingdom, he gets into blessings for those unexpecting people getting unexpected blessings inside the kingdom of God. And that's what you have in the Beatitudes. The, word be, the Beatitudes come from the Latin word that means blessing. And so far, it's been a lot of fun. I've heard a lot of feedback and I'm being, I'm joking. Um, the first week we talked, I mean, I have heard a lot of feedback, but I'm joking about it being a lot of fun. Um, but I think it's been good news. I mean, we heard the first week that blessed are the poor in spirit, like blessed are those who know spiritually they have poverty that they don't have all these great spiritual riches to offer God, where God's like, I'm drafting you on my team, that God comes to us and says, I just want your life. And we say, that's all I have to offer you. And that those that acknowledge that that's the best that they have is just to give them their life, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we say, blessed are those who mourn, because those who mourn, not just generically, although that is true in some aspects, but blessed are those who actually mourn the brokenness. They mourn their poverty of spirit. They see the brokenness in their hearts. They see the brokenness in the world, and that makes them mourn. And Jesus says, blessed are you if that's you because you're comforted, comforted with grace, comforted with hope. And then last week, we said, blessed are the meek. Now, that one in particular I heard was a lot of fun for a lot of you. And if you're like me, you're wired to be more of like a power person who likes to, you know, be in control. 
you know, you basically said this was like a Dear Nathan sermon, um, except for you put your name in there. And so I'm not gonna rehash all that just to, just to not beat you up again. Uh, that's a joke. Man, y'all are rough this morning. That's a joke. Um, but basically what we said was blessed are the meek. Now that doesn't mean blessed are the weak necessarily, but it does mean blessed are the meek, meaning that like our savior who was strong, but you use your strength to be a blessing, that you're gentle. And Lord knows like, I preached that last week. And this morning, on the way to church, somebody about cut me off and I instinctively just honked my horn. Then I was like, Lord, I hope they're not going to journey. <laughs> and then we were driving along each side of each other and then they got in front of me like as if they would maybe need to turn down Disciple Drive. They didn't slow down by God's grace. Um, I did pray that the Lord bless them and keep them. Uh, and that his face would shine upon them this morning. So yeah, like, blessed are the meek. I still struggle, right? It's not like I preached it and I'm like, got it. No, blessed are the meek. And so for three weeks, it's been like, oh, okay. These are blessings that are unexpected for unexpected people. And, it, and it's hard. And so you kind of might find yourself going like, does it get better? Does it get positive? And I, I think today it kind of does. I mean, I think each week has been positive in a sense, but we have to work through the mud a little bit to get there. And it's not necessarily gonna be that different today, but I think what we're gonna see today is when you are poor in spirit, when you are meek, when you are mourning over the brokenness, the yearning that that creates in you can actually be used as a means for change in our world. You see, the early church revolutionized the world. In the first few centuries, it revolutionized the world as they found themselves in the world, but living in the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this quote from Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, and he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And this is something that he quotes in his book. He says, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. And to cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity and to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. What a profound impact the kingdom of heaven had in the midst of the kingdom of this world when it launched. The kingdom of heaven has broke in in Jesus Christ, is filled with his spirit and dwelled followers, and it makes an impact. And this happened through those who were poor in spirit, through those who were mourning the brokenness, through those who were weak, or excuse me, for those who were meek. But notice that they weren't passive. They were poor in spirit, they were mourning, they were meek, but they weren't passive. No, instead they directed these conditions into an active pursuit of something in this world in which they lived. Christians were in a way the tip of the spear of what God was up to in the world. And that's always the case because that's the way the Lord has chosen to work through his spirit indwelt people who are following the ways of Jesus. But I think if we look at our world now, we have to wonder where are the Christians in the midst of it all? Are we at the tip of the spear of what God is doing in our city? 
in our country, in our world? Is the tip of the spear dull? Is it more like a blunt knife? Are we piercing the darkness in our lives with repentance? Are we piercing the darkness in our city with light and with justice? Or are we more or less just kind of happy to attend a church service every now and then and go about our lives the rest of the week as though we're all we're hungry for or all we're called to is some mundane existence where we lack purpose, we lack drive, we lack power. Do you ever feel a longing in your heart for the things of God? A longing in your heart. I was convicted this week just thinking about that. You know, I I can be sad and, and mourn in a way the brokenness in the world, but if it doesn't hit home too much, it's easy for me to just kind of be like, that's sad. Come Lord Jesus and just kind of continue on my life. I can be broken over this and sad over the sin in my own heart. But if it doesn't impact my family, if it's just something that I perceive as between me and God, is it make me all that broken? Do you long for the things of God? If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you want more for your life and you want more for our church and you want more for our city, what needs to change? Jesus has something for us about that today. He's going to answer that question, I think, today. And here's, what he's going to, here's the way he's going to answer it. Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so now that we've trekked through the depths of the first three Beatitudes, let's scale the heights of this beautiful fourth Beatitude And in doing so, let's awaken our souls to the reality. And let's do that by looking at what exactly is the righteousness in the kingdom? What does he mean by that? What is righteousness in the kingdom? Number two, what is a blessed appetite? We're going to talk about a blessed appetite. And then the third thing we're going to see is the satisfaction that you desire and that I desire. So righteousness in the kingdom, a blessed appetite, and the satisfaction that you and I both desire. So starting with just righteousness in the kingdom. And as we have each week, let's just kind of begin by defining some terms here. What does Jesus mean by righteousness? Well, the word takes a little bit of nuance. Like we don't hear it much. We don't use it much. Even in church circles. I mean, you're not going to be going to journey group and hearing somebody like talk about the fact that they're really struggling with righteousness, right? Or that their life is going really righteously. It's just not a word that we use a lot, even though it's in the Bible it's not really common vernacular. In fact, I was thinking like, okay, where have we even hear this in pop culture? And so I Googled it. I was like, because it was, I was thinking, I know I've heard it somewhere recently. No, it actually hasn't been that recent. The first one that popped up was, um, you remember Crush and Finding Nemo? The turtle, right? And he's catching a wave and he's like, righteous, righteous. Yeah, like that's, that was one. And then the other one that, that I found that I should have thought of because I'm a Friends fan was Chandler and Monica back when they went back in time and Chandler is showing up and Monica's lost a lot of weight and he's like, oh, wow. So he goes, I think it's Thanksgiving and he rolls in the kitchen. He's like, you know, make me some of that righteous mac and cheese and he's got the flock of seagulls hairdo and the blazer. Like, right, that's not what Jesus means, right? He's not hanging tin and telling him like, hey, let's be righteous. So what does it mean? Like, it's just so lost on us, I think, ultimately as a culture. So where it comes from a Greek word that uh, is 
Dikaiosune, Dikaiosune, I believe is how you say it. And here's what it means. It's a state of him who is as he ought to be. State of him as, or her, as he ought to be, the condition acceptable to God. And another definition that I found is that it means integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. You can see why we need to talk about this in the church, in the world. You see, across human history, humanity has done two things typically with, in regards to the idea of righteousness. Number one, we've tried to create our own sense of what is righteous, our own sense of what is correct feeling or acting. We determine what's true. We determine what's right. This is not a new thing, even though we see it in our culture today. This has been going on since the garden. Not only that, the other thing we try to do is that when we realize that there is some sort of divine being and we feel that we may be held accountable to them, we then begin to try to stack up our own righteousness to present to him or her, whatever you believe about the divine. And that's what humans have done forever. Create their own righteousness. What does it mean? And then offer that righteousness to the divine that they believe may be there. And it's played out across all cultures since the Garden of Eden. This is what it looks like now, though, in our culture. Cancel culture, right? We know what that means now. It's kind of a buzz term, but it's cancel culture. We live in a culture that basically says, these are the right things. This is the right way to act based upon what our society has deemed correct. And if you cross that boundary, you're done. We'll cancel you. You have no uh, meaning in our, the best thing we can do is just kind of ignore you. That's the best thing you can do. Maybe the worst is that you're just completely cut off from society altogether. We see it in our political discourse. It's no longer an exchange of ideas about how to properly put together a society that flourishes. Now it's good versus evil. And it just kind of depends on which side you're on. I mean, I hear it all the time in political discourse. They are not just wrong, they're evil on the other side, right? It's, can't, it's like they are not just wrong, they are wicked. They're, they're not correct, they're not pure, they're un righteous. We see it in the way that we have protests and rioting, right? We get, we see something that happens that provokes in us, like this isn't right. Then we respond with protests. We see it just in the way that we have immediate takes on social media, that we all of a sudden can tell everyone else what we think about their actions, regardless, before even all the facts come out. This is what we see as a culture. And because we are inclined naturally to try and create our own sense of what is right as human beings and what is wrong, we need to make sure that we understand what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is he talking about? And it takes a little bit of nuance. So I wanna give us kind of a biblical overview, I think, of what righteousness actually means. We're gonna pick up some scriptures along the way to just kind of see that. But the first thing I think it shows us is that righteousness is a personal holiness and integrity. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 and 6 through 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now that last thing, because it is written, be holy because I am holy, is actually a quote from Leviticus chapter 20, where God in the Old Testament is telling his people, you are to be holy. Why? Because I'm the Lord your God and I'm holy. 
and you are my people. You see, he quotes Leviticus 20, and just like Leviticus 20, where God says, consecrate yourselves, Peter calls us to action. Be holy. Do not conform to the evil desires when you lived in ignorance. But here's the key. Notice our identity first. As obedient children, as obedient children. And in Leviticus 20, God says, I, the Lord, I am the Lord and I make you holy. You see, the reality is that we are made holy by God and then we're called to live in light of that. We are given an identity and then we live out that in reality. So righteousness in the counter kingdom reflects a pursuit of personal holiness and integrity, reflecting the character of the king of the counter kingdom. But we can't read scriptures, you can't read this and just simply think like it's a personal holiness because the context of the story of scripture is that God is not simply looking for holy persons, he's making him for himself a holy people. You see, we have communal holiness and integrity. We, we need to be an alternative community. In that same letter by Peter, here's what he says in chapter two, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, there's power created when a group of people being transformed by Jesus gather together. And this is the church, both local and global, both present and historic, the people of God, a alternative community. Jesus speaks about the nature of this, right? We've been reading in our benediction, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, in case you hadn't picked that up yet, 14 through 16. This entire series, and he talks about his followers are the light of the world. Why? Because he says he's the light of the world and we're following him because that's the only way it's possible that we are the light of the world and that when people see the good deeds of his people, they will glorify his father in heaven. You see, grace and blessing in unexpected places to unexpected people creates a people of God who are an alternative community within the community, an alternative city within the city in which we live. Communal holiness and integrity personal holiness, integrity. Righteousness in the kingdom is the holiness of God working itself out in people personally and communally that have been redeemed by Jesus. But if our understanding of righteousness stopped there, we'd get an incomplete grade from God. Righteousness in the kingdom of heaven encompasses more than holiness. It encompasses justice in the world at large. See, scripture doesn't divorce holiness from justice. God pairs those together. And there's lots of places we could go, but I'm gonna grab one from the Old Testament and one from the New. If you look at Amos chapter two, um, I don't know that this would be one you'd wanna memorize necessarily. Go for it, it is God's word. But here's what he says. They trample, this is God confronting Israel for their sin. And here's what he says. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. That's dark. Injustice, 
personal holiness. And he combines them together. Look at James chapter one. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Justice, holiness, they're together. Let us not separate them. You see, what righteousness means in the kingdom of God, righteousness equals private and communal holiness plus public wholeness. Private and communal holiness plus public wholeness. We don't expect the world who aren't following Jesus to be holy, but we are about the wholeness. We're about making whole what is broken when and where we can. And that equals what Jesus means, I believe, by righteousness. Okay, so this is the righteousness of the kingdom. How does that hit you? When you think of righteousness, do you tend to want to define what is right by your own inclinations? I mean, we all typically do that. Even people who follow Jesus, if you're here today and you don't follow Jesus, let me just give you a a news alert. We're not perfect, okay? We tend to do this too. We tend to try to define what we mean, what we think is right by what we're inclined to believe is right. Like who is God to tell me what is right? How dare he tell me how to live, right? There's, There's some... Even people who would say, I know people that don't follow Jesus may say this. People that even follow Jesus might even say this, that there's no absolute truth. I read a couple weeks ago, Lifeway and Ligonier did a study, what they do every year, I think, called the State of Theology, or maybe every three or four years. Um, The State of Theology, and I noticed this is a statistic from that study. 26% of U.S. evangelicals responded that God's word is not all true. So one in every four people who would say they are evangelical, which they define it. I I didn't write down how they define it, how they define evangelical, but it was pretty solid, meaning like they believe that that Jesus is salvation and that we should be sharing the gospel with others. Like that's what makes you an evangelical. Uh, And they say like one in every four would say, well, not all the Bible's true. And even more than that, 38% responded that religious belief is more personal opinion than objective truth. 38%, more than one out of three. You see, you might be like, why are you talking about do we really believe that God is the authority? Because most, or not most, but a lot of Christians, they just don't. And if Christians don't, imagine the world in which we live. Do you, how does this hit you? Do you think about righteousness and God saying like, I define what's right. I define what's holy. Does that strike you as hard? If you have no issue, though, with Jesus defining righteousness, which, again, if we're clear, that's in theory, until he rubs you the wrong way on something. But if you, if you would say, like, I think he defines righteousness, most of us, though, are inclined to kind of tilt more heavily one way or the other, right? We either kind of tilt towards focusing mainly on holiness, or we kind of tilt mainly towards justice. And I talked about this back in the Jonah series, that there are entire churches who typically kind of focus on one aspect, negating the other. So I just like, where do you tend to tilt? Are you so consumed with yourself and holiness that you kind of miss that there's things broken in our, our city that we need to be working towards? Or, or do you see all of the, the poverty and the, the issues in our city, but you're really kind of lacking any kind of personal integrity of actually following Jesus? And how does seeing this as both and, how does that challenge you this morning? 
Because Jesus is a king with a counter kingdom and that he has the right to determine what is right in the creation and culture that he made. And we actually, we want a king like this, right? In our heart of hearts, we want a king who is about restoring the broken. We want a king who always does what's good, what's right, what's perfect. If we're gonna have a king, we want a king like Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just say, blessed are the righteous in general. Although that's clearly and abundantly true in life, here Jesus makes another statement that once again is unexpected for the unexpecting, a counterintuitive blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. How many of you in here enjoy being hungry or thirsty for anything? Like how many of you are hungry right now? Yeah, all right. How many of you are wanting me to just get on with it so you can go eat? Parents, how many times in a day do you hear, I'm hungry, I'm hungry? Because in my house, it ends up with a negotiation. Like you can have a banana or peanut butter and crackers. What about chips? That's not what I said. You can have eggs or a protein waffle. I want Cheerios. You know, like that's, it's a negotiation. Well, if I get Cheerios, can I do this, right? That's just kind of the way it works. We understand that as parents, hunger and thirst are two appetites that drive our children, but they're two appetites that drive us. They drive us because they're not comfortable. Like sometimes they drive some of y'all crazy. There's a term for that, it's called hangry. And Snickers has made an entire advertising campaign out of it. Anyone here get hangry? Okay, I'm not judging the two people. Okay, I see somebody's pointing to their spouse. I'm not. Uh, but yeah, people get hangry all the time. Apparently, it's a real thing. And I know it is because not because I get hangry, because I've seen it. Not pointing any fingers. People get hangry, right? I mean, the reality is like, even many wrongdoings are blamed on being hangry. Like, it's not my fault. I was hungry. You know, like, just give him a Snicker bar, right? That'll fix it all. Just give him some Cheerios, he'll mellow out. And the crazy thing is, it works. It doesn't, you know, no one ever blames it on being thirsty, though. They're not like, I'm going crazy, I'm, being, I'm wilding out because I'm thirsty. But hangry, yes. People get hangry. We're driven by appetites, Right? And Jesus, though, he's making a correlation here, not necessarily about physical appetites, but he's making a correlation between our appetites and what we seek. You know, this is a metaphor for the human soul and what we desire. Because here in chapter five, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the next chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's a correlation between our appetite and ultimately what we seek. And when you examine the appetites of the typical human heart, you see this is true, right? Like we have material appetites because we need to quench our thirst for happiness and for joy. We have spiritual appetites because we have a a deep understanding that there's something bigger than us in the world and we don't really know how to connect to that. And so we have a need to spinch our spiritual thirst. It's interesting, like in the day in which we live, spirituality is not taboo. 
There's a lot of ideas about spirituality. Why is that? Because we have a spiritual appetite. We're born with that. How about we have sexual and relational appetites to quench our thirst for intimacy, to quench our thirst to be known. And we have vocational and purposeful appetites to quench our thirst and hunger for meaning in our life. See, we're driven by these appetites. This is why we sometimes make decisions that make no sense once you're kind of removed by space and time. I mean, I've had that moment in my life where you look back and you're like, why did I do that? What was I thinking? Have you ever had that feeling? That's because when appetites get unquenched and we begin to starve or thirst, we don't act rationally. We leverage everything for a momentary reprieve. Yet, according to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the 18th century Swiss philosopher, here's what he says about appetites. He says, to be driven by appetites alone is slavery. To be driven by appetites alone is slavery. And I think he's right on this one. See, when we're driven by our appetites, we're often enslaved. When we're driven by appetites, we're not just hungry and thirsty, we're starving and we're parched. John Tyson, in his sermon, one of his sermons, he makes an illustration like this. He says this, for someone who is starving, you can put a bouquet of flowers in front of them and they're like, no good. No matter how beautiful they are, if they're starving, you're like, look at this pretty set of flowers. No good. He says, you can put them in a restoration hardware, aesthetically tuned room And they're like, I don't care. Is there food here? That hunger is the only thing that has the power to resist every other temptation. Our appetites drive us. And we know this as parents. Whose child has has told them not just that I'm hungry, that they're starving, right? I mean, they're always starving. And I was too when I was a kid. And it seems like it's always, at least at our house, it's always close enough to mealtime. You know, it's not like two hours from mealtime. It's like 20 minutes from mealtime. It's like they innately see mom cooking. They smell it and they're like, I'm starving. Because I know if I have to wait till dinner, I got to eat it all. But if I can have some chips now, you know, I can convince them, well, I had had that apple or chips earlier or whatever. Like it just, you have this dilemma. Like you don't want them to starve, right? Um, Although we all know they're not really starving. But you don't want them to starve. But a snack now means that they may only have, they may only be slightly hunger, hungry when the proper nourishing meal is actually served in a few minutes. And we want them when the meal is served to have an appetite. You ever heard the phrase, don't let it spoil your dinner? This is built, that may have shown my age, I don't know, but this is built around the idea that snacking close to a meal will spoil the appetite for the better nourishing food. And this is a metaphor, again, for the human condition. You see, everyone in here and everyone outside this room is starving. We're starved for love. We're starved for affection. We're starved for meaning. We're starved for transcendence, to feel like our life matters, that we can connect to something deeper than the moment. We're starved. We have appetites. And every person ever created has an appetite. We are all hungry and thirsty. The question 
is what are you hungry and thirsty for? What are you hungry and thirsty for? What are you starving and parched for? Because John Tyson says this, a starving person has one all-consuming passion to eat. What are you starving for? Here's our problem though. We do eat. We just snack around. We don't feast. We, we are too often snacking on hors d'oeuvres, feeling unsatisfied, and then we are awaiting a feast of another kind to fully satisfy our soul. And for some of you here today and maybe watching online, you have, you're used to the hors d'oeuvres of the world. You snacked a little bit on wealth. You snacked a little bit on sex. You snacked a little bit on good food and good drink. You've snacked on some comfort. You've had a little dabble over here of vacation. You took a little slice of career advancement. And we think it's going to scratch the itch and satisfy us. And while those things are in and of themselves fine and good, we can enjoy and we can use them to enjoy the glory of God when left to themselves, when wealth and sex and good food and comfort and vacations and careers are left to themselves, they are only hors d'oeuvres that actually dull your appetite for a moment. And then it comes roaring back. And like that child who's legit hungry and gets some Skittles or a bag of Cheetos, five minutes later, they're still hungry. That is us. We snack when there's a feast available. For others... We snack on the hors d'oeuvres of cultural Christianity. You put your faith in Jesus in a moment when you were young maybe, but you never really intended on actually following Jesus. It was more of a love to escape hell than it was a love of the King of heaven. And now you wonder why you don't see God at work in your life. You wonder why your appetites are all out of whack. You snacked on cultural Christianity, a cheap knockoff of following Jesus. And instead of taking a seat at the feast of righteousness, which is what is a life as a disciple of Jesus, you've taken a, taken a little pull off that hors d'oeuvre tray of the world. I believe this is what Jesus is getting at with this beatitude. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. Blessed are those who are starving and parched for righteousness, for personal holiness, for communal holiness, and to see God fix our broken world. We don't want hors d'oeuvres. We want to be starving for the meal that satisfies. We want to echo the psalmist in Psalm 42 when he says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go meet with God? We want that. Starving for the righteousness in the counter kingdom, that is actually a blessed appetite. But Jesus says when we hunger and thirst for God and for his righteousness, we are blessed because this blessing comes with a promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
The word translated here, filled, means filled in abundance or satisfied. You see, Rousseau was right that we are enslaved when we are driven by desires and appetites. But when they drive us to Jesus and the righteousness that he brings, it actually satisfies us. Instead of enslaving us, Jesus says he sets us free. But satisfaction feels elusive, doesn't it? If we're being honest, could it be because we're looking for it in all the wrong places? Isaiah 55, uh, it's a prophet in the Old Testament. Here's what God says through Isaiah. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Jesus is the one who can quench your thirst and satisfy you with rich food. He is where our soul finds life. And like God is saying through Isaiah, we buy things here that we believe are bread. Like we believe they're gonna satisfy us. Things that we think will sustain us and make us happy, make us feel filled and in the end, they don't satisfy us. You see, metaphorically, we have bad diets that lack the sustenance and satisfaction that your life and my life longs for because God alone can actually give us what is good and what our soul needs for life. But Jesus blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. How, how can we be satisfied with that? Because even in our best attempts, at living a personal, holy life, even when the church even collectively does really well and, and models Jesus to our city and to one another. And even when we attempt to fight for injustice in our world, we still fail. At best, we can hunger and thirst if it's on us for some halfway righteousness, some incomplete, half-hearted holiness. But I want you to see, don't miss the qualifier. Because Jesus says you're blessed if you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That means that you don't have the resources available to you. When you have a pantry full of food, you're not starving. When you've got a clean tap water, you're not thirsty. No, we hunger and thirst for righteousness because in us and through us, because it needs to come from outside of us. We don't have the resources to meet our hunger. Therefore, the only way we can be satisfied is to have righteousness given to us. And Jesus says that he will satisfy us if we hunger for that kind of righteousness. Not we can be satisfied, we will. How? Because we receive righteousness by faith, not by works. 
This is how Paul says it, as Morgan read at the beginning. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And why is this good news? Because we can receive it, how? By faith. By faith. And look at this here too. It's total. What does he say? From first to last. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the communal holiness of God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together, holiness of God and his justice in the world. He's coming to fix what's wrong. This has been revealed and it is received by faith from first to last. You see, it's not from first and then your work. You see, I want you to see this as we close. God has stocked your pantry. God has stocked your pantry. When you're starving and you go to receive righteousness, it's there. And as you take it in, you don't lose it. You don't have to go back and go, well, I've been eating on that righteousness in the pantry for a few weeks now. I gotta go restore it with some of my own righteousness. From first to last, he restocks the pantry of his righteousness so that as we hunger and we thirst, it's there and that's satisfying. It satisfies God's declaration of our need for righteousness. He provides it for us. We need it, he provides it. It satisfies God's wrath towards unrighteousness and brokenness and rebellion and sin in our hearts and in us and in our world. And it satisfies our soul as it meets the deepest longings of our hearts. How does that work? Because the gospel meets the longing of our heart to be accepted. Every human being wants to be accepted. And we live in a world in which it's really hard to get accepted. When people know the real you, will they accept you? God says, I know you, I accept you. In the gospel, we come to Jesus to find acceptance. The gospel satisfies our longing for change. Like we all know deep in our hearts that we need to change. Like we all see it. But we don't really have the resources to change. And yet the gospel satisfies the longings of our heart to change because it gives us what we actually need to change. The gospel answers the longing of our hearts to be fully known, accepted, and fully loved. Fully known, fully loved. That's what you're looking for in intimacy, right? That's what that shows in marriage. This is me, and I love you. And God says, I fully see you, I fully know you, and I fully love you. And the gospel satisfies our soul and the deepest longings to belong. He doesn't just save you individually, he puts you in a family. 
the family of God. Do you ever feel like people coming to Jesus at the end of their life is unfair? <laughs> I remember as a kid, I used to feel that way. I used to be like, oh my gosh, that's so unfair because in my view as a kid, like all it was really about was about heaven. So it was like, they get to live how they want. And they go to heaven when they die, that's so unfair. And as I've gotten older and I've lived how I want, I realized like there's not a lot of satisfaction in that kind of life. You see, the reality is that Jesus is calling us into a life where there's satisfaction now that you can't find anywhere else because he created you. He knows what satisfies you and he brings it to bear in your life. And don't get me wrong, there are times as in my life where I'm dissatisfied. Like, but the beauty of the gospel is that when I realize I'm over here dabbling at this other table and he's got a feast for me over here, he's not yanking me over here, condemning me the whole way. I see you, I know you, come on, come home, come to the table. And the last way I wanna show you that it satisfies us is that the gospel both satisfies, satisfies us now, but it satisfies, satisfies us forever. Because the gospel means that eventually all wrongs will be made right. Wrongs in us, wrongs by us, and wrongs in our world. God's redeeming it all. And there's coming a day when the kingdom of heaven overcomes the kingdom of this world with its lies, its pain, its brokenness. Jesus is gonna make it whole and those who are in him will be made whole with it and we'll be able to enjoy him forever. And like the old line in the old hallelujah chorus, you know the hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah, you hear it a lot at Christmas. The hallelujah chorus at the end says, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The cry of satisfaction. God is on his throne. Jesus is reigning and we are there. Hallelujah. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness for they will be filled. They will be satisfied. Amen. As you, as we close in a call to action this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you would push back, not for me. Let me just encourage you to examine your appetites. Are they satisfying you? You ever feel that long sense of satisfaction that lasts more than a moment? Or do you constantly feel like you gotta get to the next thing? Maybe that will do it. I wanna invite you to feast at the table of Jesus Christ. How? by the power of the gospel. A righteousness for you by faith from first to last. If you're here as a disciple of Jesus, let me encourage you to think through, like where do you need to repent of a lack of holiness in your life? We've all got them. No one's made it. 
Where do you need to repent of a lack of holiness in your life? Number two, ask Jesus to create a deeper hunger and a deeper thirst in you and in our church for righteousness, for his ways. And finally, in moments of dissatisfaction, ask the Spirit to show you where you're looking wrongly for it and to find rest in Jesus now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning to have your word, to have your truth, to have your righteousness, to, to know what you desire, and not just what you desire, to know what would lead to our enjoyment and satisfaction in life. God, we're all hungry. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know we're hungry and you know how to satisfy us. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. Because the king of this world, he wants to blind us. He wants to give us enough hors d'oeuvres to keep our appetite somewhat remotely not starving so that we can just keep nibbling our way through would you open our eyes to the feast that you have set before us? And would you open our hearts and dig deeper wells of hunger and thirst so that you can satisfy us in ways that we've never dreamed? And for us in this room who are like, that seems like a pipe dream. God, would you, and that can be me sometimes. God, would you open my eyes? Would you open our eyes to your goodness? We love you. It's for your name we pray. Amen.